How should we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have different opinions, positions, and interpretations than we do? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Once again, you are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, May the 2nd of 2011. And as always, I am your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you. Thank you so much for downloading this message. We are blessed to have you here with us today. In fact, I shouldn't say that I'm always the host here anymore. You guys probably realized last week we have added a new study and a new uh, a new host, a new author, uh, to join our team at BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Uh, his name is John. He's doing our study on First Peter, and we just had our first lesson this past Friday. I hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys are getting a little bit more of... Uh, of a variety here. Uh, John and I have been friends for a couple years. I started listening to his podcasts, um, I guess about the summer of 2009, uh, maybe a little bit before that, somewhere around there. But anyway, he and I have been friends for a while, and uh, you know, I just wanted to mix up what we've got on here, you know, give you guys some variety and some good studies, and his study's good. And um, so yeah, it was just kind of something that uh, came together and seemed to work, and so John is uh, is going to be joining, or has joined, the BibleStudyPodcast.org team. Hope you guys are going to enjoy his lessons. I'm sure you will. Uh, but yeah, you guys have been getting a little bit of a variety here uh, the past couple weeks. Let's see, we've done uh, another lesson in First Thessalonians, and we did uh, my, my Easter sermon from Linwood Evangelical Free Church here in Linwood, Washington, uh, called Don't Myth Easter, uh, just basically talking about the resurrection from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And hopefully you guys caught that one. That one is apologetics. And for those of you who have been with me a long time, I know that there are several of you who have been listening almost since... Uh, almost since the beginning, you know, a little bit more than four years now. And one of the things that drew you in was probably the fact that we were doing weekly apologetics lessons back then. And so uh, the Don't Myth Easter uh, sermon, hopefully, um, was something that you liked. So anyway, we have a lot to cover today. We are actually only, uh, we, we've got three chapters to go, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, we're really hitting kind of the end stretch here. This is really the final stretch as we're coming down to the end of our study on Romans. We should be done in the next two or three years. Just kidding. We're going to be done probably, uh, you know, in the next few months uh, as as the verses start to cover some more things that really, um, you know, you are, kind of get lumped together, you know, cover more verses in one shot. So anyway, let's go ahead and start chapter 14 today with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much just for preserving our ministry uh, for all of these years and getting us all the way up here to chapter 14 in Romans. God, I just pray that this, uh, that this passage will speak to us today and teach us more about you and draw us closer to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you handle differences that you have with people that you love? Most of us probably realize that each one of us is unique, just like everyone else, right? 
I mean, seriously, though, uh, we probably all know that there are very, very few people who hold the same likes and dislikes that we do, the same political views that we do, uh, or the exact same doctrinal views that we do when it comes to our faith, or the same interpretation of absolutely everything in the Bible that we do. The question is, however, where do you draw the line? At what point, that is, at what point do you say, you are so different from me, I want nothing at all to do with you? Well, sadly, as you look back through the past 2,000 years or so of church history, you'll find a lot of disagreements. You'll find a lot of bickering and, uh, and, and disharmony. Further, you'll see that disagreements have been handled in a variety of ways. Of course, the biggest split in church history was probably the Reformation, right? The great reformers, men like, um, like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and so on and so forth, they believed that all doctrinal truth and practice was revealed in Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church, however, believed that doctrinal truth and practice was revealed in both Scripture and tradition. So that just that one word, tradition, caused a huge split there at the Reformation. Uh, and the result, as most of us probably know, is that the Western Church was divided into two categories, Catholic and Protestant. And I say that it was just the Western Church because there was already another split before the, rest, uh, before the Reformation. The Greek Orthodox Church broke off from the Roman Catholic Church long before the Reformation because the two sides had differing opinions on who sends the Holy Spirit. One said the Father, one said the Son. They didn't agree, so they split. Now, I would imagine that when a person knows that they're about to die, they focus on the things that are of greatest importance to them. This is a point that I've made with you guys before. You know, if I'm if I'm lying on my deathbed and I have less than a day remaining until I die, am I laying there trying to remember something like, you know, whether or not I watered uh, my house plants before I last left my house? I mean, maybe some people out there would, but for me, that's just not something that's important enough to waste time on if I know that my time is really limited and, and almost over. And when Jesus' time was almost over, he bowed his head and he prayed. He prayed for things that were really important to him. He prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for the people that his disciples would themselves disciple and train. And he prayed for each generation of disciples that would follow after that. And he started off his prayer by praying for our well-being, that evil wouldn't overcome us, and that we would persevere through times of suffering. From there, he prayed, quote, the glory which you, he's speaking to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, speaking of the, the disciples, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. That's from John chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. And he'd go on to say, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them as I in them. That's from verse 26. So I don't think there's any question that Jesus was praying for his church, his people to be united. He knew that a house that was divided against itself was bound to fall. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, he said, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. So unity 
was really, really important to Jesus. It was a priority in the mind of Jesus. But if unity was so important to Jesus, why have there been so many internal conflicts within the church throughout church history? I think that the answer is that many followers of Jesus confuse the terms unity and uniformity. The reality is that God doesn't have a a cookie cutter for making followers of Jesus. He didn't design us to be robots. There are going to be differences between us. We might be united, but uniformity is a totally different issue. We're each unique, and we each have opinions and views and even interpretations that are sometimes diametrically opposite. Now, if you're looking for the perfect church in which there was no uh, difference when it came to views or positions, you won't even find it in the Bible. We learn in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, that someone named Alexander the coppersmith, who was possibly a follower of Jesus himself, actually harmed Paul in some way. We know that Paul and Peter had a conflict with one another, and Paul actually was brave enough to get up in Peter's face to confront him about it. That's from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And we know that Paul even had such a huge falling out, such a huge disagreement with Barnabas, of all people, with Barnabas, that they, t- that they parted ways, never to work together again. That's from Acts chapter 15, verse 39. Now keep in mind that Barnabas was one of the first followers of Jesus to welcome Paul as a convert, and that he and Paul had done years of missionary work together. So aside from Paul, we also know that the Apostle John also faced opposition from someone named Diotrephes. That's from 3 John verses 9 and 10. The fact is that the church, like any other organization, is characterized by disagreements and differences of opinion. The fact that those things exist in the church doesn't have to be a bad thing necessarily, though. How we handle those differences is much more important than the fact that those differences exist to begin with. Of all people, Paul knew that differing opinions and positions were going to exist within the church. They were going to be there no matter what. He also knew that those differences could tear the church apart if they weren't handled correctly. So how would Paul ensure that the church in Rome handled their differences in a way that didn't divide them? Let's take a look at what he says here, starting off Romans chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So Paul starts out this discussion of handling differences by, first of all, categorizing believers. There are those who are weak in faith, and with the establishment of that category comes the necessary implication that there are also those who are not weak in their faith. And we'll find out in the next chapter, he calls those people strong in their faith. He's addressing those who are not weak in their faith here, telling them to accept a person who they might think is weak in their faith. But he warns them against doing so for the sake of simply being critical of the person's opinions, bringing them in so that you can change them and make them just like yourself, in other words. Now, before we go any further, let's just make sure that we understand that Paul isn't talking about there being a separation of those who do follow Jesus and those who don't. He's not concerned with there being a lack of unity among those who don't follow Jesus and those who do, uh, and he's not concerned with those who, uh, you know, who don't follow Jesus having disharmony with one another. Of course, disharmony should exist between those who do follow Jesus and those who don't. 
We're talking strictly about followers of Jesus having unity here. If a person denies that Jesus is Lord, that he is the God of the universe, they are not a brother or sister in the Lord. John had something to say about this when he wrote, quote, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. That's from 2 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Now, we should note, first of all, that this doesn't mean that you shouldn't invite an unbeliever into your home. That's not what John's talking about here. Rather, when John says, do not receive him into your house, he's talking about Sunday morning gatherings, the gatherings of believers who would meet in house churches and would have communion together. And when John says, do not give him a greeting, he's not saying, don't greet somebody, don't talk to somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus. No, he's talking about giving somebody a blessing or a recognition of brotherhood in front of other believers. So in other words, don't call an unbeliever a believer. Don't call a wolf a sheep. This is only a warning which pertains to anyone who denies that Jesus is Lord and pertains specifically at that time, in that context, uh, to the Gnostics who taught that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, but that he only appeared to come in the flesh. So it was really kind of a deception. So if someone denies that Jesus is God in the flesh, they shouldn't have the rights and privileges in the fellowship of believers that those who affirm that Jesus is God in the flesh will have. Now, any person who affirms that Jesus is the incarnate, almighty God, the second person in the Trinity, born of a virgin, and who was crucified and died for us and was resurrected, that person who believes those things is a brother or sister in Christ. Paul isn't saying that these issues are up for debate or that every opinion is equal on these matters. No, Paul's talking about secondary doctrinal issues here. And the issue that he chooses to focus on first here is that of diet. Paul tells us that the person who is weak in their faith, or at least we perceive them to be weak in their faith, may be convinced that they should only eat certain types of foods. And this is one of those areas where people have varying opinions and positions, even today, right? I mean, today we have some people who are doctrinally sound, but who practice maybe a vegan or maybe a vegetarian diet. Uh, Conversely, you have some people who want to stay away from eating excessive carbohydrates in their diet, and so they primarily eat meat. Well, in the church at Rome, many of those who affirmed all of the right things, many of those who believed everything that was necessary to be considered part of the church, had come from a pagan culture in which meat was commonly sacrificed to false gods and idols. And having been surrounded by that type of environment, the idea of eating meat was, for some of the early followers of Jesus, a really disgusting and revolting idea. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul addressed this very issue, writing, quote, Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. 
That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. In other words, there's no food that's really being sacrificed to another god because there is no other god. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you know what the difference between Christianity and other world religions is? Now, you might say, uh, you know, Jesus' grave is empty. That's correct. But the answer that I have in mind is that our God actually exists. And that's the point that Paul's making here. But Paul's also sensitive to the condition of those who are weak in their faith. And he knows that by eating meat, he could potentially really upset a weak follower of Jesus. And by doing that, by, by upsetting them, he might cause them to sin in their anger. And so Paul continues writing to the Corinthians, quote, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's from verses eight and nine here in chapter eight. Uh, in other words, our liberty, the liberty that we have in Christ, shouldn't be used so freely that we should feel like it's okay to cause someone else to stumble in their faith, that it's okay to make them sin, that there's no uh, consequence for us. Now, of course, the Bible clearly teaches that certain foods should not be eaten, right? I mean, hey, the, der- the dietary laws of the Old Testament set the boundaries. But those boundaries were only given to Israel, In the New Testament, we find clear teaching that we have the liberty to eat whatever we please. In fact, as we're going to see uh, see here in chapter 14, uh, verse 14, Paul's going to go on to write that, quote, nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And of course, that's because the law of Moses was abolished by Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, we read, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So the requirements of the faithful changed because of Jesus. First of all, we should remember that the Levites were the priests in the Old Testament, but Jesus was not a Levite. He was actually from the tribe of Judah. So it's a new priesthood that we're under. Chapters 7 to 10 of Hebrews uh, outline in specific detail how many things have changed. Uh, Jesus took the place of Moses. Jesus took the place of Aaron. Jesus replaced the sacrificial lamb by being the sacrificial lamb himself. The point of all of this is that a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the laws and standards that we live by. Nevertheless, sin remains a serious issue. That's something that has not changed. And we should never do anything that causes a brother or sister in Jesus to stumble into sin. And thus Paul concluded the subject with the Corinthians by writing, By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Again, that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. So the principle here is that if you cause someone else to stumble, if you cause someone else to sin, guess what? You're sinning too. The principle that Paul wants us to get here is the same point that he was making with the Corinthians. So he continues writing in Romans chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. He writes, 
The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, let me illustrate this. Let's say that you get hired. You're a chef, and you get hired to be the personal chef for the president. And you have a hunch that the president will absolutely love the way that you cook chicken cordon bleu. In fact, he does. And every time you make it for him, you get word that he's pleased with it. And so what do you do? You prepare chicken for him that way every time you prepare chicken. Now, let's say that after some time, you find out that there's another chef on staff, uh, on the president's staff, who also prepares chicken for him. But instead of preparing chicken cordon bleu, he prepares chicken Kiev. And word gets back to you that the president expresses the same heartfelt appreciation for this other chef's dish as he does for yours. And more than that, you find out that there's yet another chef who also prepares chicken for the president, but he prepares grilled barbecue chicken. And apparently, he too receives word from the president every time he makes it that the president was pleased with it. Now, how does that make you feel? Well, it shouldn't make you feel contempt or discouragement because all three of you have received the same type and the same amount of praise from the president. And that's kind of the point that Paul's trying to make here. Don't feel contempt. Don't feel anger for someone else just because they have a different way of trying to live a life that's pleasing to God. And the main point that Paul wants us to catch here is this. If you don't catch anything else, catch this part. Is that even if we consider ourselves to be strong in the faith, we should never feel as if God considers us to be any better any more faithful, or any more valuable to the kingdom than someone who has a weak faith. God loves those who are weak in the faith just as much as he loves those who are strong in the faith, as evidenced by the fact that Jesus died for both of them, and thus God has accepted both of them. We don't have the right to pass judgment on the other chefs, so to speak, because they're not even our employees. They belong to someone else. And the point that Paul's making here is that they belong to God. They're servants of God, not of us. And ultimately, they're accountable to God, not us. Now, you have to remember that this is talking about things that are not of primary importance. Uh, As we've seen, um, you know, the identity of Jesus isn't up for negotiation. But we should remember that sin is another one of those areas where we don't negotiate. We don't negotiate when it comes to sin. So what are some secondary issues that we see followers of Jesus disagreeing on today? What are some of these things? How how does this principle that Paul's uh, outlining for us here in chapter 14, how does this principle come into play in our church today? What are some issues that we're divided on? Well, more than I could name in a couple couple hours, more than I could name in a single lesson, that's for sure. You know, I've heard um, some of those who advocate the young earth position, that's the position that uh, says basically that the earth is around 6,000 years old, Um, and and I've heard that, that there are some of those who advocate this position say that someone who advocates an old earth position can't be a follower of Jesus. 
nonsense. In, in other words, you know, if somebody, um, let's say that I believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, I don't believe that the, uh, that the Bible teaches either way, uh, and that's something that I addressed in one of our Q&As back in the day. But uh, let's say that I believe that the world is 6,000 years old. I don't have the right to judge someone who says that the world is 600 million years old. That's not something that should divide us. Uh, Some will say that you shouldn't drink alcohol, while some others will say it's fine to drink alcohol in moderation, you know, as long as you don't lose control of yourself. Some will say that you shouldn't dance, while others will say it's okay to dance. Some will say that you should wear your Sunday best to church, while others will say come as you are. Some will say that you shouldn't watch mixed martial arts, while others will say it's perfectly fine to watch mixed martial arts. Or how about this one? Some will say that God determines exactly who will and who won't be saved, while others will say that God wants to save everyone. Hopefully you get the point. We are going to disagree on a lot of things that ultimately don't matter all that much. And the point is that we shouldn't be casting judgment or holding contempt or anger for one another on such matters because we all belong to God and we're all ultimately accountable to him. God is much, much more interested in our motives than in our actions. The Holy Spirit is telling us right here through Paul's pen that maybe neither side is right or wrong on a lot of these issues that relate only to personal convictions, because the Holy Spirit is the one who's responsible for those convictions. I shouldn't feel the need to make everyone else's opinions conform to my own. Rather, each person has the responsibility to take care to make sure that their own heart is pure before God and to follow the convictions that the Holy Spirit places within them. He's dealing with me, and he's dealing with them on different issues, and my job is to be okay with that. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for this time, and we thank you, God, that you have found us acceptable in your eyes, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you did by sending your son Jesus to pay the price for our sins and to make us acceptable and righteous in your eyes. God, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to strengthen our convictions. And Lord, we also echo your prayer that we may be one as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. We love you, God. We live for you. We belong to you. Teach us to live in harmony with one another and to follow the convictions that you place on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer 
to Jesus.